0: Unsee the future How to encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow Episode 19 Poverty Part 2 Last time on Unsee the future we began our finale of looking around the entire circle of the UN's global goals Its grand to-do list to save us by looking at its number one priority Ending poverty And we discovered that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, it's very easy to fall into poverty and hard to get out. And that some of the very strategies of growth themselves in the engines of wealth around the world have in fact exacerbated it. But to make real progress, is it time to address one aspect of our shared economic history globally that is at the very root of all our wealth and all our problems? What price the truly hopeful human tomorrow? Founder of Nuru, Jake Harriman, spoke at a TEDx meeting a few years back. In his talk, he explained the motivation for him wanting to found a humanitarian organisation when he left the military, one with the headline goal of eradicating extreme poverty. He described a scene from his memory serving in Iraq with the US Marine Corps that left him feeling deeply frustrated. A local farmer, coerced into fighting the coalition, was making a break for it to enemy lines with his family. Desperate for help, it seemed he wanted to escape his whole country's desperation under a dictatorship now at war, and was waving his arms for help after pulling up at Harriman's lines and running from his car towards them. Not yet having any idea what was happening as this lone vehicle had sped nearer, Harriman said he knew he'd have to make a decision any second, as this solitary figure had flung open his door and made a break straight for them. He shouted for the man to stand down. The man kept running forward, shouting. Harriman ordered his men to hold ready. Behind the running man, a military truck from the Iraqi forces pulled up suddenly, and soldiers jumped out. They ran towards the man's car. And simply opened fire into it. The man stopped in his tracks, turned, and raced back towards the bullets. In a second, says Harriman, that man lost everything he had. The man's wife, baby, and young daughter were suddenly dead, there where he'd left them moments before, in his car and his desperate bid for escape, for help, had failed in the worst way anyone might have feared. Harriman said he felt lost for a moment as he approached the scene, Iraqi soldiers themselves now dead around the vehicles with the man's family after exchanges of fire. Then he found himself holding his rifle limply at his side and weeping with the distraught man. Then, he said, it hit him. He felt angry. It wasn't fair, he said. It wasn't fair that the GPS coordinates of this man's birthplace dictated what choices he had in this world. In the middle of politics, sometimes defended with armed force, there are ordinary people just wanting to protect their families. And the injustices of conflict only compound everyone's poverty, it seems. And yes, in the most meaningful, pertinent sense of all our crisis-defining human poverty today, when I say this, I consciously include those made privately financially wealthy by war. If flashpoints in history of conflict are always unfair to those involved, either serving or just caught in the crossfire, then how much deeper do the roots of injustice go when our economics are founded on the long-term suffering of many how stable a foundation is this from which to defend the more hopeful human future if we can't have peace without justice and we can't build a sustainably just future without accounting for everyone on earth and if all our wars are, in the end, about defending economic identities. What would reparations to African nations be if we added up the money Britain and Europe made from slaves? If you've never thought of the idea of actual reparational payments to black Americans, Europeans, Caribbeans for their history of exploitation by their historically European nations, I'm going to take a punt and say that's quite possibly because you're white. Might not even have ever entered your head, nor mine. Not even heard of it before a few years ago. When you're growing up, even the decade before you were born seems like irrelevant paleontology. Stone-dead fossil stuff. Flares gave me the creeps by the time I was 11, and I even had pictures of me wearing them, age 5 or something. So don't ask me about William Wilberforce. He may as well have been mates with Jesus. Then don't ask me why flares came back in the 90s either. I was old enough to just about eschew them at college. But the older one gets, the more one realises how stupidly fast time flies, and how many mini-epochs modern lives can have covered in such rapidly redecorating cultural times as the 20th century. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were rallying for the very basics of legal dignity for black lives in America mere moments before I was born. Which means the gramps and grandmas of plenty of white folks still alive in the US today could have been immediate family members condoning lynching in the Deep South. Don't wince. It's just maths. This stuff is fresh, not ancient history. But the nature of our history is something quietly speaking to all this, if any of us notice it. Because if I mention Ottobaco Goano and the Sons of Africa... You may well assume I'm referencing some incalculably hip 70s Afrobeat group you're now knuckle-biting wishing you knew that this was an African abolitionist group of educated black former slaves championing the stories of those suffering under British economic rule to the newspapers and society groups of 18th century London. Maybe as much news to you as it was to me before I googled it. Because who of us got taught that in school here in the UK? Certainly no one when I was there, in resolutely tight drainpipe jeans. As Dr. Alan Rice says in his useful outline of the slave trade's economic history, markup on Africans bought from slavers on one side of the Atlantic could be 600% on the other side of it when the idea began to boom in the late 17th century. And all Europeans were piling into the idea, having all piled into the Americas with plenty of plundered land now to put to good use, and nowhere were near enough hands to use it. By the time we get to the time of great British hero Horatio Nelson, such individual profits were down, but the trade was massive and driven by such a modern-sounding problem. Consumer tastes, namely, of that intoxicating demon still holding us all hostage. Sugar. Although average profits on successful slave voyages from Britain in the late 18th century were less, at around 10%, this was still big profit. The love of sugar that developed in Britain and other European populations meant the demand for sugar could only be met by the expansion of the slave trade to keep their plantations busy, he says. But it tastes so delicious... Interesting that today, nearly two centuries after Britain finally abolished slavery across all its colonies, if you don't count the little place called India for a while after that, in the 1807 Slave Trade Act, it turns out we still find it so difficult in my country to freely talk about the real historic effects of the British Empire, its clever achievements and its costs. Why are we not taught, for example, that Admiral Nelson's column-inducing job was not simply defending the financial interests of Britain at a time when perhaps 80% of the country's blooming economy just was the triangle of the African labour trade, but that he heatedly opposed Wilberforce's momentum to outlaw slavery? Where is that in the national curriculum? And why do plenty of UK folk today get pretty heated themselves when it's brought up? Afua Hirsch's Channel 4 doc, The Battle for Britain's Heroes, was essentially undramatic. In its looking at Nelson and Churchill and Rhodes, laying out with simple good points that there are bits of their characters that are a bit racisty, and it's funny how such things are still not much talked about in classrooms or pubs. But he didn't stop by getting a boringly predictable blizzard of abuse on Twitter and of almost bored indifference to the actual racism from the nice academics she interviewed. As Matt Bayliss put it in the Daily Express, it doesn't matter that the programme was simply asking us why we don't talk about this stuff. Rather than pulling down statues and rewriting textbooks, our was arguing for a balanced view. Let's make sure our heroes, Nelson, Churchill, whoever, are presented warts and all. You couldn't really argue with it, except to say that's not really what having heroes, national or otherwise, is all about. I had a polite discussion with a chap on Twitter after it, and he didn't get in any way abusive, but did swiftly tell me this was all part of a lefty revisionist plan to undermine the whole fabric of society. Is this an age in which we can't talk about history, can't understand any complexity in people, cultures consequences. Can't challenge anything. As a Guardian secret teacher article puts it, the bits of race history that are taught in school tend to be fragmented, not joined up, leaving black Britons today still feeling awkward about how to express their feelings on it. The usual sins of omission speak volumes when you essentially relate to those being omitted. There are schools that choose to talk about Mary Seacole, the British Jamaican businesswoman who helped British soldiers in the Crimean War. But students should also learn about Una Marson, a black feminist fighting racism in Britain in the 1940s. There's Cherry Grossi, who was shot and paralyzed by police in the Brixton riots in 1985. There's William Caffey, who fought for universal suffrage until he was deported to Tasmania by Queen Victoria. And there's Olive Morris, a key figure of Brixton's Black Panther movement and a prominent civil rights activist, the article says. And the article's author says the point is this it's not enough to discuss these issues in Black History Month in October and ignore the reality of racism that minorities have to endure all year round. Edifice of British Identity. Nelson was a genius commander, and his efforts changed the fortunes of Britain, not least of which in successfully repulsing the vast threat of France's not actually so diminutive emperor, Napoleon. In ultimately defeating the Corsican fiend, Hardy's daddy crush is owed all the empire's ultimate wealth from sea to shining sea by our great institutions him and the august confidences of the Royal Navy and England's very establishment hierarchy of the time which saw Nelson, in his own words, bred in the good old school. But how are you supposed to feel about this history if you're British and black? Or even consider yourself a smooth caramel blend of rich British love? Part of the modern state of us in the UK as much as anyone, because this apparently still needs saying in some conversations but part of your identity arriving in the North Atlantic via the West Indies from West Africa. If, as a white boy from Bournemouth, I am technically half Welsh and half English, with a name dating back to Norman times, then I partly arrived here via invading French Viking, partly by migrant German hired thug, partly by gallant defending Britain, and partly by conquering Italian technocrat. At no point was any of my biological heritage transported here via slave cargo hold. How differently do you and I feel about what it means to be British? Because there's no escaping the reality of both those personal perceptions. They're both real parts of our shared country today. The story of how we all got here and ended up in each other's lives. For many black lives, wondering how much they still matter in 2018... Reparations represent the reset button everything needs The whole sorry mess What, really? Actual payback to, what, everyone descended from the slave trade? What, uh, what would that cost? How would that work? And uh, don't be so what now? Yes, it's a considered thing, and whilst you may say scoffingly that the flat earth is also an apparently truly considered thing, making the news persistently these days as another little bellwether of the galloping lunacy of our times perhaps, this other bit of supposed craziness doesn't tend to make the news. But if you hadn't heard of it before, you should find it interesting to know that reparations for slavery exist in concept as a serious attempt to heal many world divisions. There are a few bodies exploring it, like CARICOM, based in the Caribbean. And they see this role as, of course, an uphill task, but as an obligation to justice, a peacemaking responsibility. The CRC is committed to the process of national-international reconciliation. Victims and their descendants have a duty to call for reparatory justice. Their call for justice is the basis of the closure they seek to the terrible tragedies that engulfed humanity during modernity. The CRC comes into being some two generations after the National independencies process and finds European colonial rule as a persistent part of Caribbean life. You might be unsurprised to hear that they claim to have persistent objection from European governments to its, as they see it, mandate, but they see it as a necessary path to progress. The echoes of the past are not quaint period drama stories, but for millions of people, a resonance through their now. And speaking especially for the people of the Caribbean, the CRC says it sees the persistent racial victimisation of the descendants of slavery and genocide as the root cause of their suffering today. But what is the plan for this? How would any governments deliver such a grand scheme? Well, here's the interesting first point. The CRC lay out a ten-point plan to deliver suitable reparations as they see it, and their number one step would cost nothing to any taxpayers directly. Full, formal apology it would be an obvious start, right? The healing process for victims and the descendants of the enslaved and enslavers requires as a precondition the offer of a sincere, formal apology by the governments of Europe. Their point being that the statements of regret some governments have offered in the past have deliberately sidestepped culpability. Much like then Prime Minister Tony Blair's impassioned statement ahead of the bicentenary of abolition 12 years ago. As the Telegraph reported at the time, "'Personally, I believe the Bicentenary offers us a chance "'not just to say how profoundly shameful the slave trade was, "'how we condemn its existence utterly "'and praise those who fought for its abolition,' he said, "'but also to express our deep sorrow that it ever happened, "'that it ever could have happened, "'and to rejoice at the different and better times we live in today.'" It was dismissed by many different groups, as worthless words, because it was backed up with no justice, no action. The point many black lives would make there being better times um doesn't feel as different as you think tone, which is a perspective that will undoubtedly seem as ridiculous to some as it does bloody obvious to others. Perspectives possibly influenced a little by your skin colour, I'm going to guess coyly. All ridiculously simply put by me here, but fundamentally out there in our wrangling around geopolitics and the justice of our economics. Development, aid, corruptions, influences, interests, hopes, all the things swirling around the honeypots of resources across the globes on all sides, it's a chapter in history that so shapes the modern world, nothing of today's wealth and opportunity is isolated from its implications. Britain's industrialisation itself, the world leader in modernisation, drew massive funding from the economy of its day, an economy banking on human cargo. How do you think some of the great traditional edifices of the UK, such as the Bank of England building, first built in Threadneedle Street in the late 18th century, where it still stands? Or even the Palace of Westminster, the seat of sovereign parliamentary democracy, mate, rebuilt at a time when last slaves were still not free from loaded taxpaying landowners. How do you think they were essentially afforded by this particularly wealthy business nation? If you're possibly smarting imperceptibly imperceptibly, at the idea of anything from 5 to $15 trillion in payback being a conceptual possibility for the collected nations of Europe and America to find as the price tag for supposed justice, well, you might like to know. Reparations funds were found before. Reparations paid to disenfranchised slave traders at the time of the Emancipation Act, to pay them off and make it work. The British government allocated the equivalent of billions in today's money all on its own, a giant wallop of its GDP at the time, to compensate the rich so heavily involved in the business. At about the same time they were throwing up the new houses of Parliament, so it's obvious the sun was still only rising on Victoria's global economy. Reparations to slave traders, not slaves. Yeah, and here's the extra rub. According to the Treasury, the last of it was only actually paid off in 2015. Think about that. As The Independent reported in 2013, when a study of the reparations documentational history was published by UCL, a list of prominent people in today's Britain were revealed as descended from families who benefited from the payoffs, including former conservative PM David Cameron, a rather smaller society than advertised, you might say. Now, naming names of people with dodgy sounding family is sort of pointless dog whistle stuff, of course. Because naming anyone without dodgy ancestors in there, who were we to hold each other accountable to them? But the relevance of these revelations is simply this. Look at who is related to who, and still in positions of influence over Britain today. Today, people and institutions like banks. How far away is history to us? It wasn't abolition that triggered this reparations plan. It was another act of parliament more than a quarter of a century after it. That not only finally forced the emancipation of people already enslaved, far too late for thousands of them, but also triggered the huge payouts for their suddenly former owners. Legislation that, as Sanchez Manning's article puts it, made provision for the staggering levels of compensation for slave owners, but gave the former slaves not a penny in reparation. Manning quotes Dr Nick Draper, who headed up the study, as saying there was a feeding frenzy around the compensation. A large proportion of the Victorian elite was entitled to payouts, and many had the equivalent of millions given to them. And yet freedom still didn't come for thousands of slaves even at this point, with the concept of apprenticeship demanding former slaves work out an unpaid contract with their same masters while they were trained, as it were, to be able to cope on their own. What this turned into was sometimes worse conditions than before, with special magistrates dispatched to Caribbean plantations to help the recently handsomely compensated plantation owners enforce justice from any unwilling supposed former bondsmen. And there's an interesting detail that will also resonate with the modern mind from this precise period of economic history. The treadmill. Ever felt you're on it in your dead-end job? You should know, it doesn't mean a boring running machine. It means a punishment device, and not your normal self-inflicted one a splintery drum of boards that used prisoner power to turn mills or pumps, but which were, under apprenticeship, used as an even more deliberate torture. As Chris Mangiapara explains, apprentices accused of laziness, what slave owners called the Negro disease, were hung by their hands from a plank and forced to dance the treadmill barefoot, often for hours. If they fell or lost their step, they would be battered on their chest, feet and shins by the wooden planks. The punishment was often combined with whippings. And it's not like you could even nip out behind the bins for a forlorn fag in the car park. How far away is all this from us today? As we stand next to each other with British passports that are about to turn resolutely supposedly traditional blue again and have very different feelings and personal connections to our shared British identity, this quintessential modern digital nation. If we can name names of people still in the establishment, if black British citizens had their taxes still paying off, some body or other benefiting from slave trade payoffs, until the middle of this decade... And if the cultural habit of our day is still such that our history doesn't teach us all this joined up, you knew all this and I didn't, then is this history at all, in a sense? Is it, in fact, still part of our business as usual? So much, in fact, that the full circle of our look at the global goals brings us back to where we started. Climate because Britain led the Industrial Revolution. Its culture of innovation, confidence, audacity, intelligence, science, even storytelling, transformed the world, funded vastly, fundamentally, by the slave trade. And the biggest single result in the end is the crisis of an entire planet's shifting relationship with humankind. The climate crisis... The thing that every other crisis is happening within. On the surface, the world is vastly different for us. Wealth like the world has never known. An explosion simply of colour in every conceivable way. And of sound, music, story. Of possibilities for ordinary people. We have lassoed the very moon, and billions of ordinary schmoes like me and you live like little Greek gods, even bored and neurotic in our wealth, the like of which ancient world leaders couldn't sufficiently dream of. And amidst it all, we can be friends. We can cross divides that were unthinkable mere seconds ago in history. So many daily interactions and opportunities are a multicultural melt of wonderful possibilities compared with what looks like another age entirely now. The age when the slave trade finally founded, perhaps especially in modern Britain. Itself a country I'm used to thinking of as full of creative possibilities, triumphant in daily acts of humour, charity, generosity, creativity, so many glimpses of a future that's so cheerily human. I owe the land of my birth so much of me. But under the surface, many argue it is essentially the same system, still working. For all the dramatic changes in psychological economic software, if you like, now running the modern world since the financialization of it, the attitudinal hardware, so to speak, is still the foundations of the same world machine, other age men, built. And millions of us know it. And millions of us don't. As Kehinde Andros tells DC, we must understand that slavery and colonialism are what Western prosperity and the current world were built on. Slavery brutalized all societies involved. Atrocious racism survives, both in severe structural inequality and in blatant racial prejudice. But is the lid unscrewing slowly off? The world machine. In our now of fearsome realities. And is it so fearsome? Because yes, if this is turning out to be like Wells's Martian capsules blasting through the gently twirpling evening summer trees of Cozy Horsell Common in Sussex, with that ominous giant clang of the lids falling right off, precipitating unspeakable monsters of alien form, rising up to enslave us with giant stalking genocide machines, then Well, no wonder we're all psychologically running for the ships. Is the possibility of facing what's inside too awful to contemplate? So much so that we never will adequately. Not least because we all have things we'd rather not discover in there. In looking at the long-awaited publication of Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, Afua Hirsch shares some bitter facts woven into this story written in the 1930s by the legendary Harlem Renaissance writer. Because, in the book itself, as Neil Hurston interviews in detail the last survivor of the last known slave ship to sail from the African continent to America with human cargo. Spending fascinating time with this man then in his late 80s, she admits to feeling torn about the reality of his story that he wasn't kidnapped by white traders, he was sold by fellow Africans. Kujo Lewis, a man born Oluwale Kosola in the Yoruba kingdom of Takoi, was living history to Zora Neale Hurston. But today, she is more legendary than he is, among black scholars as a kind of civil rights anthropologist. And picturing the two of them together, there in a vivid, intimate scene in imagination, somewhere around the time of the Great Depression, Afiwa Hirsch today implies Zora's nuance in storytelling is missing in much of today's. Hurston herself remarked that in writing Kosola's harrowing account of how the King of Dahomey profited from raiding and selling members of neighbouring kingdoms, she was deeply affected by the question of African complicity in the slave trade, says Hirsch. The inescapable fact that stuck in my craw, Hurston wrote, was my people had sold me, and the white people had bought me. That did away with the folklore I'd been brought up on, the white people had gone to Africa, waved a red handkerchief to the Africans, and lured them aboard ship and sailed away. And yet, says Hirsch, this lost book, Barracoon, that couldn't find a publisher until almost 60 years after its author's death, also helps deepen the understanding of the context in which slavery took place. She quotes Deborah Plant, a Hurston scholar who edited the book. This idea of African complicity is more myth than a reality, because at that point in history there was no such thing as an African. People on the African continent did not self-identify as Africans, instead There was a self-identity in relation to specific ethnic groups and specific kingdoms, religions or language. So many of us don't know, because we don't have these nuances about our history. All our identities are a construct of imagination, aren't they? Are we in a time of multiple identities feeling like they're cracking, leaving us lost if they break altogether? There are, in the modern world, it seems, just so many ways to feel lost. Yet, if it does feel like the lid is coming off this collective time capsule, full of ghosts and terrors and heartbreaks, whether we like it or not, it seems to be unscrewing itself, as it might inevitably always have done, you might say sanguinely. But if anybody's quaint horse commoner tradition is to be overturned with invading drama, remember, that war of the worlds wasn't the end of the story. Because something saved us from the death rays and red weed, the tiny truth of the nature of life on earth, the bacterial reality that makes us and binds us together. Can the value of the freedom and the choices and the funded education that I was just handed ever be paid back to sides of maybe your family still combating habitual ticks of prejudice in our culture? No, is the obvious answer. Not by me. I will forever owe and even across the 10 steps, CARICOM lays out for the African reparations, the debt cancellation, the psychological rehabilitations, the cultural reinstitutionalizing, the health crises investments, the repatriations, the investments, the raw humility diplomatically demanded. Even then, it's known there's no making straight handouts to individuals or even to indigenous governments, so often effectively encouraged by corporate interests to be complicit in their people's suffering. It will take whole new trust organisations to administer any paybacks and invest them well. And we don't have a great track record of that happening yet. Debt is owed in multiple ways by everyone, at all levels. May sound oversimple, but it's true. Many families down at ordinary us level have been drowning in debt, trying to stay afloat. It's a regular theme of modern times. As the cost of doing everything has gone up, driven as much by our system's addiction to private property values as anything, ordinary people's ability to afford a healthy place in public life is diminishing all the time, in many places, right in the heartland of the traditional wealth centres of the world. And as this begins to affect infrastructure investment for ordinary people by public bodies and the governments they supposedly voted in, it leads in turn to a growing infrastructure deficit in the whole public realm. and infrastructure deficit leads directly to social deficit, a thread-bearing of the fabrics supposedly richly woven for the good of the nation to bind it together economically from the old cotton mills supplied by the old cotton fields of Alabama. In the meantime, there is you... And me, trying to patch up our cheaply made jeans, trying to get on. And you know, what can we do? From the world's current stooping shuffle, I think there's one thing we can do. I think we can look up. Seeing the hopey changey bit. Dream of being rich, of what it might be like to be a billionaire. I find myself wondering this again as I wrap up the cost of doing daft hopey changey art and start going looking for the next thing I can actually bill someone for. But if we dream occasionally of being them and of having their choices, what do they dream of? Once you supposedly have it all, well what comes next? Interesting that all of the top six richest world individuals we mentioned earlier, all of the men, are described in their Wikipedia profiles as philanthropists alongside their day jobs. What audience are they playing to there, I wonder? Once you're a billionaire, who do you care sees you publicly as a human being as much as a business person? And what does it say about them that so many of them are investing in conspicuously futurey things? Are they finally losing the plot in planning to leave the planet? Or is something so far removed from the pressures of poverty it seems the epitome of ghostly wealthy disconnection actually something that might hold a symbolic key to all our ambitions to make the human race truly wealthy? In trying to invest in getting more of us out of the gutter, should we be even spending a single penny on trying to get more of us out into the stars? Or does the penny finally drop when the penny floats? The designer of Spaceship One, Bert Rutan, the aerospace engineer whose team won the SpaceX prize with the craft, was philosophical as Dr. Brian Cox interviewed him for a BBC documentary, The 21st Century Race for Space. He said, Why do we as the human race want to fly into space, push and push and push? I think it goes back to why we're different from the animals. The animals live to survive. Humans live to explore, to find out what's over that mountain. On December 17, 2003, the 100th anniversary of the Wright brothers' first powered flight, Brian Binney was at the controls for the first powered test flight of Spaceship One, taking the craft to a top speed of Mach 1.2. And he went on in the second flight to break the record for the highest winged flight in it. And he too, formal naval pilot and practical Princeton graduate, was philosophical as Cox interviewed him about the human experience of flying into space. In fact, he was dreamily thoughtful, as he spoke about the memory of what happened after the incredible adrenaline rush of the rocket motor firing, propelling the craft to its 112km altitude from its parent ship launch, and the motor was then shut down. It was, he said, for all the excitement that got him to that moment, by far the best part... It's as though you step across the line into an entirely new dimension and this instant karma of weightlessness, he said. And it happens just like that. And you realise, he continues with a slightly lost for words pause, you're in space. And it's as though somebody's pulled back a stage curtain for the benefit of your eyes only. And you look up, and there it is, this black void that is space. And he pauses again, thoughtfully. It's a mystery and menace. But you can also sense its majesty. It is, I can picture being for anyone, a humbling, profound, indescribable moment a moment of such perspective the first time you see earth from space and see space as it really is so black so vast Carl Sagan's masterful hijacking of the Voyager camera against sensible orders from the mission command who wanted only science gathered from their delicately precarious impossibly distant-seeming crafts instruments is an image that changed the world, the pale blue dot. Something that took the image of Apollo 8's iconic Earthrise photo and raised the frightening perspective of our one home planet to the ultimate truth. All we know of us isn't just hideable with a thumb. It can look like a speck of dust to be wiped off a photograph. These are the science and engineering and, yes, politics-driven moments that mark humanity's very, very first steps into getting true perspective on itself. And tell me, what price that? It's no wonder many of our billionaires think there's a lot of cash to be unlocked in space tourism or in building an escape plan to Mars. We can't afford to lift all humans out of poverty or global justice-redefining reparations, but we can afford to go to Mars. Rich people can burn rocket fuel into the atmosphere to have a briefly stratospherically expensive poetic moment. What planet are we living on? On the face of it, yeah, you're right, and the drivers of the space race were blatantly politico-economic, a race to flex the idea of supremacy between the US and the USSR. But... Regardless of what the disconnected rich splurge cash on instead of human equity, it brings me to the experience we collectively have of progress. It doesn't happen uniformly, does it? And I think there is a very basic principle we have to bear in mind if any fight for justice or struggle to build in sustainable new systems of wealth are going to work. We are not dealing with economic units. We're not trying to find new ways of accounting for human life, like counting beans. That's the good old school's kind of engineering. We're dealing with people. And if people are born to do anything, they are born to explore. Take away inspiration, and we take away progress's ability to ever take. And, like it or not, our inspiration is outgrowing this one planet's horizon. The nascent story of humans taking to space, spreading their cosmic wings for the first time, inspires millions to look beyond the now. It's the resurgence in the scientific understanding of our celestial neighbourhood afforded by space technology that is giving many people hope. It simply has to be some small but noticeable part of the story of us right now because it just speaks to us, to our instincts, to grow way beyond the treadmills of globalisation. And here's the truth, like all travel, the more we get out there, the more we learn about home. Like a personal anxiety coping technique, Being able to pause the business of building our now and pull out mentally to low Earth orbit and see our context, it is as amazing to us, as calming, as inspiring, as hope-filling, as any image of progress can be. It shows us just how tied our bloodlines are Seeing the Earth from space is when hardened test pilots and engineers, the frontier heroes of our modernist times, really first get it a kind of reverence for life. As Colonel Bob Springer, astronaut who flew with the space shuttle Discovery twice, said to me once Everyone who goes into space comes back an environmentalist. Everyone. I think simply, such perspective might give us some practical help down here, right down at ground level, some psychological tools to take us forward. Firstly, the fruit of such reverence might be a little attitude change, Deploying a very humble word into our thinking, because I think a first definitely possible way forward we can, any of us, engage as we work out what must be done, is, I believe, a key aspect of the whole shared future. Helping to develop a story of grace. I don't simply mean picturing William Wilberforce singing Amazing Grace flintily as the eventual poster chap for everybody's abolition work, though it's easy to imagine him doing so. I mean the grim idea that after everything, the historically marginalised and oppressed nations of Africa, the Americas, the people of India, everywhere, I wonder if a keystone to helping us build bridges between identities may be to include a conscious degree of grace in expressing all our heritage into future identities. Forgiving the past. It doesn't undo what must be done, what must be recognised. That is the work of justice. But what will truly build the future is more and more of us becoming conscious that we need grace, and so need to give it. Grace is at its most potent in partnership That's when we can get truly productive. Secondly, it's the goals, the SDGs themselves. They are high-minded and they don't mention reparations, but they do one vital thing that I've come to realise as I've spent so much time with them. They help ordinary schmoes like me and you put it all together. The Great Circle Of everything we have to do. The complete story of us. The full picture of the consequences of how we've been living. Lost in the world machine. Putting it together in our lowly, schmoly minds is... Empowering. Sobering. Very weightily sobering. But oddly inspiring giving us a much higher level of that vital mental component we're collectively missing, awareness. When we understand more of our context, nothing we do is in a vacuum anymore. And gazing into space can give you that. Which means you might find yourself acting differently, seeing differently Knowing what you are doing is part of a bigger story. And while this will rob you of some hope to begin with, sorry, if you're really facing the facts for the first time together, it's likely to oddly percolate, bubble through your mind and filter your thinking. Suddenly, all you do in your daily life will have new resonance. You may begin to feel that your life is oddly less lost in the machine because your living your very life will begin to feel like it's part of that bigger story and this might get you off your bloody ass at last you think you can't do anything as Chris Manjapara points out in A Grimly Frank History of the Slave Trade, over the past few decades, scholars have stressed the ways in which the anti-slavery movement depended on expanding democratic participation in civic debate, with British women and the working classes playing a crucial role in the abolitionist ranks. British parliamentarians were inundated with thousands of petitions from ordinary people, pressing them to pass laws that eventually brought slavery to an end. So much of the 18th century Britain is unnervingly like today's. The hierarchy, the gossip, the papers, the society trends, the consumer fancies, the bawdy entertainments, the worthy hopes, the blind ignorances, the sincere intentions, the arrogant abuses of power, the satirical wits, the inequalities, the prejudices lurking. But while it looks like the same machine under the different lace cosies, look closer and you'll see something has changed. The machine is infected with nanites. It was the enslaved themselves who rattled the cages, forced uprisings that destabilised the system, sang the songs, built the cultures, held on to their identity and pushed it up through the earth into the sunlight, evolving and growing, knowing they were every bit as civilised as their savagely dehumanising oppressors, knowing they were every bit right. To stand up for who they were what they believed they knew they could see a future and they didn't ever become the under species they were forced to be and in the end they got noticed by other humans prepared to surrender a little to empathy today well, we're so swamped with channels of information, it has overloaded our attentions. How can we ever muster sufficient focuses of public attention we can skew the system with and force change? Yet, connected like this, our collective empathy has not so much been empowered as fundamentally upgraded. For the digital networked human, you and Blumin me now is a whole new level of us. You are the ghost in the machine, connecting a living new machine in the lungs of the old one, and every new connection you make reshapes it. What shape would you like it to be today? The truth is, when you pull out, this enormous theme running under all our modern economics, yes, slavery, It goes beyond Africans or native nations of any kind being bought, sold, and abused by old empires. It's no conchy student poetry to say there is a kind of slavery net ensnaring all of us, an entrapment of thinking in how we live that I would say keeps us docile, kind of asleep, asleep to the human potential and to the things we can collectively do to address injustices it's the kind of thinking we're trapped in that led to historic slavery in the first place and the question many are asking is this is the now of fearsome realities beginning to wake up more of us Umer hack writing for medium says he thinks we're simply in the age of collapse Ha <laughs> That our culture's inability to question the fundamentals has perpetuated it way beyond its ability to stand up. That the kind of super people that corporations effectively are, omnipresent and multi-connected to more than human powers, makes them the overlords of our time. But the reality of any hope to defeat these killer automatons stalking the earth, subjugating us, is in the fact that the world machine they're part of is a system beginning to fail simply too many people in what people are. The people running it. All of us, top to bottom. Humans. This global system is not benefiting the average person in any real way. Financially, socially, culturally, relationally, politically, economically. It might give him a cheaper TV and the drugs to numb the pain with, but soothing the pain away isn't happiness. And while you might say that his saying this really is getting a bit student-conchy poetry club, it's hard to deny the sense of disillusionment driving populist times. So much a consequence, I'd say, of our expectations not matching reality. Which means, and now is the time to help change those expectations of the very things we consider of value to us. If your life was stagnating and I asked you, free trade or a decent life, you'd laugh at me, wouldn't you? Are people human beings or are they just mindless workers, insatiable consumers and heartless competitors, says Hack. And he makes the link all the way from the slave trade in America to kids working out their disillusionment in infamy-chasing classroom carnage. But even in this failing system, he says there are examples of not being so enslaved to it, suggesting it's the good old Nordic nations that show better how it's done. They are not protectionist nations. They trade away happily, but they also do something that the rest of the world does not do so much. They reinvest the gains from trade in robust universals, strong social contracts, things like parental leave, health care, protection, insurance, incomes. They're all guaranteed. So there is not the tension there, so much, at least of trade versus livability. Yanis Varoufakis, lefty Greek showbiz economist, suggests we won't make any practical difference to the crises of now by looking backwards to the achievements of our system, even if there is world shaping as the collective epochs of capitalism have been. He recalls, Back in 1991, a left-wing friend expressed his frustration that really existing socialism was crumbling, with exaltations of how it propelled the Soviet Union from the plough to Sputnik in a decade. I remember replying, under his pained and disapproving gaze, so what? No unsustainable system can be ultimately sustained. Now that globalisation is also proving unsustainable, and is in retreat. Its liberal cheerleaders resemble my friend when they proffer similarly correct yet irrelevant exaltations of how it lifted billions from poverty. He makes the point that we have a lot of money kicking about, but we're not investing it where it's actually needed. Humanity's accumulated savings per capita are at the highest level In history. However, our investment levels, especially in the things humanity needs, such as green energy, are particularly low. He describes the real story of us globalizing as going right back to the first migrants all of us. Humanity has been globalizing since all our ancestors left Africa, the earliest economic migrants on record. Moreover, capitalism has been operating for two centuries like heavy artillery, in Marx and Engels' words, using the cheap prices of commodities to batter down all Chinese walls, constantly expanding market for its products and replacing the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency with intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations. God, economists can get filthy, can't they? It wasn't until the 1990s when we noticed the unleashing of momentous forces that we required a new term to describe the emancipation of capital from all fetters, which led to a global economy whose growth and equilibrium relied on increasingly unbalanced trade and money movements. It is this relatively recent phenomenon, globalisation we call it, that is now in crisis and retreat. So then, what does this mean for us, left here at ground level to deal with it every day, psychologically and practically? What is history, and what is heritage? How do we define the difference in our minds? Because let's face it, it was none of us that did those specific historic things. We were none of us alive in that context. It is, in so many ways, history. But we all of us get to choose our conscious identity today, or perception of heritage, piecing together the fragments of ourselves into the collage we believe in. And if we can feel empathy with the bloodlines we learn to be connected with in our imaginations, as we experience what others perceive this to mean in the way they treat us, can we yet delve deeper into our minds and feel a glimmer of empathy for the blood running through everyone's veins. It's as hopey-changey hippy peace song as it gets, but it's also the bottom bloody line of our economics. Influenced as enormously as we are by our education, our family, our cultural atmosphere, it is possible that those things themselves can change when we resolve to influence them back And in new partnerships, who knows what realities we can make. Howard Zinn, activist and historian, describes it to perfection in a quote reminded to me by the lovely First Lady of Momo while she was reading Noam Chomsky's Occupy, presumably while furthering her bid to overturn her gift to be a naturally profoundly balanced person to become instead a loony-barking Marxist, presumably. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic, it is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. It could be the quote on the inside sleeve of Unsee the Future, the coffee table edition, couldn't it? What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. He says, Hear that? Do you hear that? If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. What's emerging, really, is a truly globalizing world, one where we can no longer hide our sacrifice zones, because they have phones. The business as usual of this chapter of human life on Earth seems, well, it seems the most likely impossible one, doesn't it? Glimmers of hope but the reality of overwhelming selfishness baked into the systems of the world machine, just grinding on. But, whatever the pain you and I might be laboring under today, defining our ability to think about anything, the statistical pragmatic truth surrounding all our contexts is that the consequences of collective human living are converging to overwhelm everything. Our selfish business as usual is not sustainable. So things will never go back to the way they were when things suited you better than now, if they ever did. Or to some pre-injustice age. Or to Eden. Our job is to help see what life is like after we've tattooed the indelible scars on us and the planet. How to live with the semicolon. Farhad Mirza, a human rights activist I met once during a travel glitch that had us spend an unexpected rainy night talking the world in a bar in Berlin, posted this on Twitter. No one leaves home until home is a damp voice in your ear saying leave. Run now. I don't know what I've become. Home by Warsan Shire we are all the migrants the immigrant lost we can continue to try to just shut each other out push each other away but we are only storing up bigger and bigger problems for us and our children for the planet we all have to live on can we reach a tipping point moment where our work to face the crises Educate and empower and enfranchise the refugees. Repower the countries they're fleeing from. Emancipate the enslaved homeless looking for refuge in a storm. Starts to shape a new earth. Even new ideas of heavens possible in it. I think it won't be super saviours that rescue us. It won't be leaders alone in the old-fashioned sheepling sense of them that will or can light up the complete global goals into a significant measure of success. The revolution won't be led. The evolution will be encouraged. The symptoms of our living tell us what's wrong. Injustice presents everywhere... As the daughters and sons of former slaves struggle to live lives as ordinary as and equal to the sons and daughters of former slave owners so many daily blindsides from friends and co-citizens a system built by dominating men leaving men and women across all cultures struggling to know how to relate as equals and mental health the world over imprisoning us in habits of comfort and desperation for purpose that is squandering the incredible medical advances, prolonging the lives we have to live to feel broken and lost in. All while the complete song of nature is ringing in our ears, a low-building hum, a chorus of animal voices calling us to do one thing. Wake up wake up to who we really are for we are the part of the great circle of the earth that has the purpose to sing for her for all life we can give her the words the world machine is broken the plan for fixing it is imperfect but we ourselves are the wonky componentry everyone vulnerable, fat-headed, ignorant of some things, understanding of the value of others, impoverished in so many ways we are too poor to even see, struggling to know ourselves, lost and disempowered, humiliated and degraded. But we ourselves are the answer. We ourselves are the hopey-changey bit. Exploring the multiverse of examples of this happening all around us now. Hey, this will be Unsee the Future's ongoing mission, I think. From rebel banks printing money to buy back household debts in England, to communities coming together to re-green the drylands of Ethiopia's desperate Tigray region, to the rise of veganism across the West, linking better health with less damage to our resources with a more humane psychology of consumption from the explosion of projects building an economy of sharing, wanting to work for good instead of paychecks alone, wanting more time with loved ones and a much stronger sense of open community, the increasing seriousness of the universal basic income, the volunteering principle emerging naturally, not just around BS 9-5s, to 5s, but in the way we value business projects themselves, to the flowering of truth budding in our sexual cultures, the admission, that we're not stiff cutouts of identity, but wobbly-shaped individuals linked by our collective need of each other and our collective suffering, desires, hopes. It is our role now, surely, to put everything together in our minds and actively work against the fullest sense of human poverty, our disconnection from life on earth to recognise ourselves in the whole beautiful rare astonishing diminishing web of it as we learn to change the way we see it and it will not be something we can fix with a switch flick we are in transition generation now from slaves to free folk from stereotypes to people from separate consumers to flocking, reforming, sharing, shaping, encouraging, global community. Is it any wonder more of us are being heard in our experiences of embodying the personal experience of transition? And do the trans of us have a profoundly simple testimony to us, to us all, in their hard-won identities? Explored as it was, in a way, a whole generation ago in Ursula Le Guin's prophetic ice-cracking The Left Hand of Darkness. We won't lose our humanity in leaving the freezer-mold forms of us. In daring to realise who we are, we'll find it. It is us, in our outlook, that will encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow. By letting our vision of it percolate everything we say and do. By letting it change and charge a greater, zoomed out sense of purpose. Like other worlders with perspective suddenly on what is truly, wondrously, preciously valuable about life on Earth. Without having to stump up millions taking a rocket trip, obviously. As Howard Zinn put it, with words I could never better as we conclude this chapter of Unsee the Future. If we do act, in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvellous victory! And there, we conclude our first series of Unsee the Future. We've mapped the whole plan for the human planet tomorrow. Good, huh? And where next? Well, I'll be back with a new series after a bit of a break, pulling together so much of the creative ideas and... Wait, what? Oh... Oh, you mean the whole... What next with the saving the planet thing? Because this isn't really the end, is it? This unrealistically triumphant, hopey-changey conclusion. Hmm... Well, if you're asking how we bring it all alive, After this much time dialing around the UN's global goals, I think I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that I think the UN is missing one. A goal. And that in fact, they are missing the most important one. The one that is the only way to make the whole plan actually work. Oh, the good news is I think I know what it is. Next time on Unsee the Future, a one-off special episode 20, Art. (laughs) Discover more links and video and reading on the blog of this post at momotempo.co.uk forward slash lingo. And be the first to get the future in your inbox. Subscribe to the Momo memos at forward slash amigo. Listen, read, ponder and share. Do. Unsee the Future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously.